The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Matthew chapter 11, and we're reading through to verse 24. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1 to 24. As we're reading this, keep in mind the reading from Chronicles... Uh, the ruination that uh, earthly kings bring with their kingdoms. Keep in mind also the application to Christ that Brother Matthew brought out for us, especially as the section after our immediate reading contains the passage, Come to me, all ye who are uh, labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's the context of this passage concerning the kingdom of Christ and King Jesus. So with that in mind, let's turn to God's word, Matthew chapter 11, verse 1 to verse 24. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. They say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, 
It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Amen, and may our Lord bless his word to us. Let's pray. Great God, we would be those now who hear of you and of your Christ and are not offended by him. We would plead with you for ears to hear what your spirit has to say, that we might look unto ourselves and examine ourselves and then look unto you for grace and goodness and forgiveness and mercy. Lord, be pleased now opening my mouth and opening all the hearts of your people and those who do not know you unto salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some passages as we read through scripture, sometimes even in the gospel, As we read through them, we tend to think that, as we come across this passage, for example, we wonder what the connection is between the passage and its context. Uh, Here we've been learning about our Lord's ministry for chapter after chapter after chapter, and then suddenly we have John the Baptist reintroduced into the narratives. It's been many chapters since we've heard of him. What's going on in this passage If we have eyes to see, we'll see that the kingdom theme that Matthew has been laboring to speak of in all the previous chapters is once again laid before us as the matter at hand. The passage deals with misconceptions. John's misconception about Jesus and the crowd's misconception about John. Uh, We see then that the towns that witnessed John's ministry and witnessed Jesus' ministry had rejected both of their ministries. They had misunderstood who was before them, who was in their presence. They misunderstood the nature of the king and the nature of his kingdom. And I would say, friends, right from the outset, we face similar pressures Today, much of the church that goes by the name of church has substituted the ordained ministry of the word and sacraments and prayer, not only for worldly priorities, but worldly practices and worldly means. But understanding the nature and the character of the king and his kingdom which entails understanding the nature of John's ministry, will help us focus upon what God has called us to. It will refocus our minds upon the center of our faith and the practices that Almighty God calls us unto. And the first thing we witness in verses 1 to 6 is the character of the king and the kingdom. And this will be our main focus today, the character of the king and of the kingdom. Then our Lord in verses 7 to 15 speaks of the character of John the Baptist. And then from verse 16 to verse 24, we see the character of an unbelieving generation. 
Christ, John the Baptist, and those that either received or rejected their ministries. That's before us today. Who is Jesus? And what kind of kingdom has Christ come to inaugurate? The character of the king and the kingdom is the first thing that Matthew speaks of in this chapter. And if you've been with us in the preceding weeks, you'll know that Matthew has spent much time speaking about the character of Christ and of his kingship and of his ministry. What kind of kingdom is our Lord establishing and how is he establishing that kingdom? There have been a multitude of references in Matthew's gospel to this kingdom, to its building up, to the conversions of those who are brought in. The constant message of this kingdom, according to Matthew, even though these words are not found in Matthew's gospel, but John's gospel is this, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Christ's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Now, why is that statement not found in Matthew's gospel? I think because it's redundant. Matthew has spent time after time after time telling us about the nature of this kingdom, that it's a spiritual kingdom, it's advanced by spiritual means, and it has spiritual goals. And we see this in the the passage before us. Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples. He went from there to teach and preach in their cities. That's how the kingdom is established. That's how people are brought in to the kingdom. And it seems that John the Baptist, as great as he was, has perhaps lost sight of this a little bit. I'll be the first to say this passage with respect to John is mightily hard to interpret correctly. And I'm going to give you what I think is the case. But when we come to John, we find him in verse 2, and we find him sending message to the Christ saying, Are you the Christ? Or should we go and look for another? Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? There's at least five interpretations of John's predicament here. At least five interpretations. We have John languishing in prison, sending this message to Christ. Some believe that John is sure in his faith, but his disciples need redirecting to Christ, which is why he sends his disciples. Others believe that John is having a full-blown crisis of faith, that under the pressure of prison, he's asking Jesus, are you the one to come or do we need to look for another? Are you the real deal? It's hard to know exactly what's going on in John's mind. I don't think he's lost heart. If that seems to run counter to what our Lord says in verse 7 and in verse 14 of us, of John the Baptist. But I do think he is slightly confused. And I'll try and explain why I think he is confused. Note in verse 2 we hear that he has heard of the deeds of the Christ. The deeds of the Christ. Those are carefully chosen words in Matthew's gospel. I don't think that phrase appears anywhere else in the gospel. And it's been many chapters since we've heard of the title Christ. It's not one of Matthew's favorite titles of our Lord. John has heard of the deeds of the Christ. That is the Messiah. The king who has come to establish 
a kingdom. And many of the Jews assumed that this Messiah was a Messiah who would deliver God's people from their earthly enemies. John had a better understanding of that, though I think still a somewhat confused understanding. For John, the Jewish authorities were the enemies of the kingdom. We can go back to chapter 3 where John's ministry begins and verse 7 we read this. John saw many of the Pharisees and scribes coming to his baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? He's telling them who they are and that wrath is coming on them. And he seems to think that that wrath and judgment is imminent. Three verses later, even now, he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. He's talking about the judgment that he thinks is coming now physically upon these Jewish rulers. And if the Jewish rulers are the enemy, then surely also the Romans are. And Herod, who has imprisoned him, must also come under that title of enemy. I don't think John had lost heart because of personal trouble. I think he's going through a theological struggle or a theological crisis You see, he can't reconcile his preaching of the coming of the kingdom with his present circumstances. He can't reconcile his understanding of the kingdom of Christ with his present circumstances. He thinks the kingdom is going to come now in its fullest form when he is alive and bring radical, radical material change to the people. I think he has some misplaced theology. And friends, I wonder if our misplaced theology at times can lead to our own troubles. We've enjoyed much blessing as a country, uh, as a religion, as a faith in this country. And yet sometimes I think we are surprised when we encounter the world behaving like the world. We're surprised by it. It can cause us a crisis of confidence. In my previous church, I remember when a certain president was elected, one family was thrown into a tailspin. And I sat down with the wife, and she diagnosed herself spiritually perfectly. She said, I'm too used to thinking like an American and not a Christian. Her theology was misplaced. It's frequently the case, I think, for us. Are we surprised when the world hates us? We should not be. Are we surprised when the world behaves like the world? We should not be. We should expect nothing else from them. Are we surprised when there's schism and struggle and strife in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? We ought not be. Scripture tells us in broad relief of every category of trouble we will face in this life because we are Christians. We ought to understand that. And embrace it rather than be surprised when the reality of being in Christ's kingdom sometimes leads us to hardship. And because we fall on those so-called hard times, we can find ourselves in a crisis of confidence. And we know what happens when we have a crisis of confidence. We begin to look for another Or we begin to look for other means whereby perhaps we can get to the same goal, but it'll be less, it'll put, the spotlight will not be on us 
quite so much. We seek to find remedies outside of the ordained means that God has given us. Friends, I want to say that's a miscalculation. It is perhaps as John is suffering, and I'm not being dogmatic on this with John, I think it's the truth. He has a theological misconception about the nature of the kingdom of Christ. So how does Christ put him right? How does Christ correct John's theological misunderstanding? Notice what our Lord does not tell him to do. This is important. Notice what our Lord does not say. He doesn't say the kingdom needs to change its ways in order to meet your expectations, John. Because that's what we see all around us. The temptation is real for us. We ought not do, in the moment of pressure, what the church today is telling us we should do. Let me give you some examples. In order to bring social justice about, we're to stop investing in companies uh, which have their origin in Israel. We're to ordain celibate but homosexual men to the Christian ministry. We're to ordain women to the Christian ministry. In Islamic countries where we're on mission, we are to substitute the name for God with Allah in the scriptures. We're to assume accusations are true before they've been investigated. We're to teach white people are inherently racist. We are to adopt the presuppositions, the language, the methods of the world. We're to chase money and those who are well off because that brings security to the life of the church. We're to dilute the biblical doctrine of male and female roles. Then we're told the kingdom will be successful. Those are all examples. I've taken them from different denominations, including our own. Those are things being said by the church today. Things we should do in order to make the kingdom more successful. It's preposterous, isn't it? It's absolutely preposterous that a kingdom of the nature of Christ's kingdom should adopt such ideas and practices. Christ has not one word of compromise in his kingdom. What does he say? How is the kingdom going to be successful? How is Christ going to be manifest as the Messiah? He says in verse 4, go and tell John what you hear and see. And this is a remarkable statement about the nature of Christ's kingdom. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's a staggering manifesto for kingdom success. A staggering manifesto straight out of the lips of our Lord. You know what our Lord is saying? He's saying, I'm going to conduct this kingdom in the way that Scripture has always told us it will be conducted. Because he's actually using here the language of prophecy. He's using the language of of Isaiah Chapter 35, verse 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. 
And again, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Why? You know this, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. This is the very mechanism our Lord is saying that was prophesied and is now in John 11 being enacted and in our lives is being enacted for the success of the kingdom. We've seen it over and over, haven't we? Healing, preaching, teaching, casting out demons. That's someone on the phone telling me I've got John wrong. But isn't that the point he's been making? This is how the kingdom will go forth. Not by any of these ridiculous new ideas. Not by sword. Not by might or power. But by preaching and teaching and healing. Christ says, moreover, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And not offended by this kingdom. This is the way the kingdom goes forth. There'll come a time when it comes in power and might again. We'll see that in a moment. But at Christ's first coming, it has come in this way. That's really the whole point of the narrative. That's half my sermon today. The call to us is to be reminded that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. The call to John was also to remember the nature of the kingdom prophesied and enacted. And friends, as a church, we dare not substitute these kind of shabby replicas of piety and practice for that which God has ordained. That will close the doors of our church. Let's be quite clear about that. Now, lest the people think incorrectly, or lest we think incorrectly, or poorly of John the Baptist, Christ now begins to instruct them in verse 7 about the Baptist ministry. Uh, The character of John the Baptist, and we have to say, Christ is not just defending John for the sake of John. He's defending who John is because John was the forerunner of his own ministry. Get John right, he's saying, and you'll get me right. Receive John and you'll receive me. That's how intertwined and closely aligned their ministries are. And Jesus begins to interrogate the crowds, verse 7, three times. What did you go out in the wilderness to see, verse 7? A reed shaken in the wind? Was John's faith collapsing under pressure? Jesus says, by no means. He's not someone who's blown to and four by every wind of doctrine, notwithstanding his question. Verse 8, he asked the same again. Have you gone out to see a man in soft clothing? John wasn't a politician. John didn't dwell in king's palaces. He's not rubbing shoulders with the powers that be. He's not some political sycophant. He's not a yes man. He's a prophet of God. Verse 9, what did you out to see? A prophet? Jesus says, yes, he's more than a prophet. In fact, he's the greatest of the old covenant prophets. This is the one, Jesus says, of John, of whom it is said, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way. 
His ministry was preparatory so the people might receive Messiah. Christ says, verse 11, he speaks of him. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He's saying of all the old covenant prophets, of, of all the old covenant saints, he's the greatest. Why? Because not only was he called to be a prophet of the Messiah, but that he actually lived to see Messiah's day. There's nothing inherent about John. It, it's a kind of redemptive historical idea where John fits in the history and plan of salvation. He's right there on the cusp of the new covenant, but he didn't live to see the new covenant, did he? Not like the disciples. That's why Christ says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, read for that the new covenant, is greater than he. Again, not greater in their character or their deeds, but greater because they saw the Messiah. They saw the crucifixion. They benefited from the full outpouring of the Spirit. Christ says that John is Elijah, verse 14. If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Why is he Elijah? Luke 1.17, he went forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That is to say, he was truly a prophet called of God to speak God's word to God's people. And he did so in an unflinching fashion, even to the point where he's about to lose his head for it. That's why he is in the spirit of Elijah. He says to the people, if you are willing to accept it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, friends, he's saying to them, get John right. Hear his ministry, receive his ministry, then you will be equipped to hear and receive Christ's ministry. Don't mistake John, he's saying, for some coward, broken, cowering in prison. Though he's mistaken in detail, he is the great herald of the Christ. And to reject John's ministry is to reject the Christ. And friends, you might think that John's ministry is time-bound. It's old covenant. It's for the people of Israel. I want to say, friends, I believe John's ministry has relevance to us today. John's ministry was a call to repentance, promising those that did not respond that they would face judgment if they rejected the Christ. John's problem, perhaps he thought the kingdom was coming sooner than it was in its final iteration. But John's ministry speaks to us, doesn't it? Because we're waiting for the Messiah again. Not his first coming, but his second coming. John's ministry... John's ministry speaks to us today. Today. It's a call to repentance. That you hear, dear friends, the king is coming again. And he will not come as he came in the first instance, born of a woman. He will not come with purely a spiritual kingdom, which exists kind of in the background of history. He will come again in glory and in power to judge both the living and the dead. That's going to be the coming of his second kingdom, or at his, at his second coming. One theologian said this, the first time Christ came, he came to slay sin in men. 
But the second time he comes, he will come to slay men in sin. Big difference. And it's going to happen. And John's call for repentance goes out to every one of us today, Christian or unbeliever. It matters not. Because the life of Christianity is a life of ongoing, perpetual, daily repentance. And returning to Christ for forgiveness and mercy. And if you're not a Christian, there is a peculiar kind of repentance that needs to be granted unto you and worked in you. It's that first time repentance, as it were, in conversion. You must repent if you're not of Christ's. This day. This day, because there is a wrath that is to come. And you're not guaranteed a life until the second coming of Christ. That life might end today. Repent and believe and receive the Christ. Return to the Christ, dear Christian, daily for your forgiveness. That's the message that's going on here. The travesty of Christ's first coming is that he came to his own, to use John's language, and his own knew him not. That's what goes on in verses 16 to the end of our section today. There was an unbelieving generation, and Christ here speaks of its character. It was an unbelieving generation that rejected the ministry of John, and it was an unbelieving generation that rejected the ministry of Christ. People were predisposed to reject both the testimonies of the Baptist and of the Messiah, and they were willing to stop at nothing to deny these testimonies. Look at verse 18. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Willing to do anything to deny the truth, to suppress it in unrighteousness, to blaspheme the name of the Son in due process. What does Jesus say there? Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Wisdom is justified by her children. What's he saying there? He's saying, look at the fruit of my works. My works prove who I am. He is wisdom, is he not? Wisdom from God to us. He says, look at my mighty works. Look at my teaching. Look, the blind receive the sight. Lame walk. Lepers cleanse. The deaf hear and the poor of good news preach to them. That proves who I am. Wisdom is justified by her children. Perhaps he's also saying there that your works, unbelieving generation, your works prove who you are. You see, John came to them, Christ came to them in this manner, verse 16. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children, childish, petulant, mean-spirited, sitting in the marketplace, calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. It doesn't matter whether they told them the good news of salvation in Christ, they rejected it. It matters not that John and Christ spoke about the wrath that was to come and judgment, the dirge, they still rejected it. They would neither have the good news, nor would they have the bad news. They simply rejected 
the message and the messengers, which is why, friends, Christ proceeds to pronounce curses upon these cities. We need to understand the language here. Woe is a covenantal curse. It's formulaic in the Old Testament. We see it many times over. God pouring out covenantal curses upon those who did not believe. Verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Beth Seder. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 23. And to you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Isn't that a staggering statement? Sodom and Gomorrah, wherein the Lord saw the wickedness of those cities and came down from heaven and blotted them out with his own hand, it will be more tolerable for them who did not receive the gospel than those who did receive the gospel and reject the Christ. More tolerable in hell. Gradations of punishment and hardship and terror and righteous torment more tolerable for sodom than these cities where christ went and preached and healed and taught more tolerable better never to have heard the christ and end up in hell than friends to hear the christ and reject him one is better than the other. What of us then, friends? What of us? Are any of us here today who have made professions of faith, but our works betray us? If wisdom is justified by her children, proves who it is, so too, friends, is folly and unbelief. Are you here having accepted Christ outwardly, but not having accepted him in truth, in heart? Or are there any here without Christ, and you know you're without Christ? You're here in your pride, in your self-sufficiency, and yet, friends, you've heard the mighty works of Christ preached even this day. You've heard it. You've heard the gospel. You've heard the call to repent. You've heard the call to flee from the wrath that is to come, and you're still in rebellion. Christ is saying to those people, those two categories of people, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you in hell. And it's a call to repentance and faith. You see, we never just preach damnation because the text itself doesn't end in damnation. I'm going to transgress on Matthew's text for next week a little bit right now. The call is to repentance and faith to accept the Savior. The call to the Savior that will say to us in verse 28, Come to me, all who who labor and are heavy laden. And Jesus says, if you're like that with your sin, come to him. And he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me, for I am gentle in lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I mean, this is a message for the Christian as much as it is for the unbeliever. Are we not in all of us in need of daily rest for our souls? Where will we find it? Not in the myriad of ways the world tells us we'll find it, but in these words, come to me. Come to me. Jesus says right now, come to me. Perhaps he's saying to some of you, come back to me. Come to me, says the Savior. Come to me. It's a call to come to the Savior who alleviates the burden of sin, who pours out the blessing of holiness and righteousness and adoption of sons, who grants forgiveness to us again and again and again and again, over and over and over. It's a call from the Savior who has drawn us up from the pit, who is going to seat us in the heavenly places where we will reign with him forever and forever. Friends, what a call this is. What a Savior this is who says this day, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Lord, we would come to you. We would come to you, Lord God, in, in the fullness of your person, the goodness of your work. And we would bless and magnify your name. We honor you, Lord God, for salvation in the Savior. We praise you for the wonderful kingdom that you have instituted in our midst. And we ask you, Lord God, that you would give us eyes to see it and hearts to trust you in all your means and all your graces and all your ways. Be pleased, Father in heaven, to bless this your people richly with faith and daily repentance to the glory of your great name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.